Was there one singular moment where you and Seth looked at each other and gave each other a high five and said, we made it. This is, this is all going to work. Yeah, when the check cleared from Coca-Cola. <laughs> what, there wasn't a single moment until then that you guys could put, could put your feet up on the table. No, there were times when we were negotiating uh, where the partner on the other side you know, calls up Seth and says, Barry is trying to ruin your family's future, and he's going to destroy it all for you. So uh, these were some uh, challenging periods. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have as our guest, Barry Nailbuff. Barry is co-founder of Honest Tea, product and a brand you're all familiar with. He's also co-author of a fantastic book, Mission in a Bottle. If you haven't read it, I strongly suggest you do because it's a great background story on all of the success at Honest Tea and what it took to launch that company. So, Barry, welcome to the program. Thank you, and all of our failures, too. You yeah. learn more from your failures than your success. Exactly. And we're going to get into that. Um, so, um, Barry, maybe you can start for our listeners. Just bring them up to speed on on your background. You've got some really impressive academic credentials. You're a professor at Yale, um, but you're also an entrepreneur. So tell our listeners about yourself. It is an unusual background. Uh, I've taught at Harvard and then Princeton and now Yale. So like many entrepreneurs, I have trouble holding a job. Uh, I've been here as teaching strategy, entrepreneurship, innovation, and negotiation at Yale now for the last 30 years. And during that time, I've had a chance to meet some remarkable students and do ventures with a few of them along the way. And so speaking of students, that was really the story on how you got together with your co-founder, Seth Goldman, and the two of you launched Honest Tea together. Is, uh, is that correct? You met him when he was a student at Yale? I did indeed. I was super impressed with him at the time. I remember advising him when we had the first business plan competition at Yale, and he ended up winning it with a product to put test strips in diapers for urinary tract infections, uh, for senior citizen diapers. And uh, it was a great idea. It might still be a great idea. But also, and Seth won lots of money uh, for doing it, but decided that isn't who he saw himself as. That isn't what he wanted to devote his life to. And I applauded that decision as well. And a few years later, when he was ready to move on from his work at Calvert and social responsibility, I thought this is the kind of person who I would like to be partner with. And so I get the advantage of seeing them first before anybody else does. And uh, I like to take advantage of that advantage. So take us back to those very, very first days of honesty. Take us back to, you know, your your original discussions with Seth and how you two hit on the idea of honesty and how you began the very early days of launch. Sure. Well, let me take you even before that. One of the things uh, that I tell my students is to go back to when they were a kid and their parents read them the story of Princess and the Pea. And... The story is uh, about how uh, the mother of a prince wants to discover if the potential dates or spouse of her son are a true princess rather than a fake princess. And so what she does is puts a pea under eight mattresses, and most of the princesses don't seem to notice 
but the true princess wakes up the next morning with welts and black and blues all over her body and talks about how just it was the worst night's sleep she'd ever had. Now, and that, of course, is the sign of the true princess that they can tell is a pea eight mattresses below. When my mother read me the story, her moral was, and you're not a princess, so get over it and just roll, roll, <laughs> roll over. Uh, and I think that's what most of us end up doing is that when we see a problem out there in the market, we just kind of figure out how to adapt and go around it, as opposed to say, you know, maybe I'm not the only one out there who is being bothered by this pee. And in the case of Seth and myself, we were both frustrated by the fact that in spite of all the beverages that existed in, that, in the world, we couldn't find anything we wanted to drink. Water's great, but boring. Diet, many people think is dangerous. And most sodas were like liquid candy. And so what, like, how could it be that we were in this uh, desert in spite of all of the options? And so uh, we shared this frustration and thought that maybe we could do something about it. The challenge was, okay, there should be a more normal beverage, but what should it be? And for years, I have been fixated on the idea of mixing orange juice and club soda, which, by the way, is pretty much what Spindrift is doing, and they're doing a great job with it. I love it. I think it's a great company. Uh, but I wasn't sure that doing that was really the way to build a brand. I was a little worried that Tropicana might just use this as test marketing. And so I was fortunate that I went to India for other reasons and discovered that tea is completely different around the rest of the world from what we do in the United States that we had been drinking fannings and dust and just really terrible quality tea. Whereas if you have high quality tea, you don't have to cover the flavor with all sorts of high fructose corn syrup and other additives. And so uh, could we do for tea what Starbucks had done for coffee? And that was the genesis of taking this idea of a less sweet beverage and saying, let's make it real. So now you guys have an interesting idea, but you refer to this problem in the book of if it's a if it's a niche that's not yet been filled, you have a lot of skeptics who are saying, no, no, people don't want that. Or, you know, how can you project yeah. revenue for something that doesn't exist? I'm reminded of other books you may be familiar with, uh, Innovator's Dilemma, uh, sure. The Blue Ocean. And those books talk about the same problem, which is if you're an entrepreneur with a really dynamite, disruptive idea, one of your frustrations is convincing investors and other people in the supply chain to go along with it because you've got no evidence that this new innovative idea is going to work. So tell us about your struggles with that. Oh, absolutely. So first off, let's be clear. When we did taste tests, we would lose to Snapple 80-20. And for a lot of people, that was an argument against proceeding because, wait a second, 20% of the market, you're a small niche. And my response is, if you like Snapple, it turns out there was Snapple, Sobe, Arizona, Nesty. There were 10 products out there for you. But if you were the 20% who preferred Honest Tea, there was nothing else out there for you. And so I'd rather own 20% of the market to myself than be one of 10 firms competing for the 80%. And so I just reject this idea that it's a niche because nobody out there has 20% market share. 
Mm. The one thing that I look for is where are customers essentially being unserved? And the trick is to look not to survey your existing customers, but to try and find ways of surveying customers who are not currently in the market. The next thing I think is important is, are you trying to change customers' choices or try and change their preferences? And if you go to restaurants around the country, the second most popular beverage served after water is iced tea. And when they bring people iced tea at a restaurant, they don't go and add 10 teaspoons of sugar to it. And so we already had people who were very familiar with drinking iced tea with zero, one, or two teaspoons of sugar. So we didn't have to change what they like. We just had to let them know that what they already like is now actually available. Having said that, you're absolutely right about this notion of when you see a hole in the market, is that a hole you're going to fall into and never come out of, or is that hole an opportunity? And being an economist, I like to use economic theory to try and answer those kind of questions. So the first lesson we try and teach our students is this notion of declining marginal utility. So the first teaspoon of sugar takes away the bitterness. The second teaspoon of sugar adds a little bit of sweetness. Each additional bit of sugar is less and less valuable in terms of flavor. And indeed, if you add too much, you can ruin the product. But it adds the same amount of calories. And so it strikes me that the right amount of sweetness is something in the 0, 1, 2 range, not in the 10, 11, 12 range. And so when I see products in the market that are violating fundamental rules or laws of economics, that gives me confidence that this is a good opportunity, not a hole that you'll never escape from. So that makes total sense. And, of course, we got 20 years of hindsight to say, wow, honest tea, fantastic product, incredibly successful. But... When you're sitting there in the early days as an entrepreneur trying to make payroll or drum up investors, you still can't, you can't do market research. There is no market research, right? Oh. And one, one of my favorite oh. sayings is all data lives in the past. So what it just, at some point in time, what does it boil down to, Barry? Just courage oh. and conviction? No, actually you can do market research because essentially, remember that, this is not a new product to people. You can see what people are currently drinking, and then you can bring them this product, and their reaction to it when you find the right customer isn't just, oh, this is good. It's, where have you been all my life? And so we, we had customers who were tattooing our logo on their arm, uh, and it was just insane how, uh, how passionate people were about this. We were getting emails on a regular basis. Now, let's be clear. There was one group of people who were huge skeptics, which were all the distributors. Because the fact is, the type of people who work for a Snapple distributor tend to be Snapple drinkers. And the type of people who worked at the bodegas stocking the shelves also tend to be Arizona and Snapple fans. And so it was really a challenge to try and get the distributors and the store folks to take the product when that what product was designed not for them. The good news is that Whole Foods was exactly the reverse. They were in a situation where they didn't have any products designed for their customers. And so we were early on in the organic days, and they were very welcoming to us. Hmm. That's interesting. It sounds a little bit like the RX Bar story, which, if you're familiar with that, their first outlet was at uh, exercise studios. Yeah. 
where those folks were looking for a quick snack before or after a workout, and they couldn't find anything that wasn't just sort of junk food. In fact, the RX bar story, it's something we may come to later, is one of the label designs we thought about was putting our nutritional ingredients on the front label mm. because we were sufficiently proud of what it was that was in the product and what wasn't that we wanted to advertise it to the world. And RX bar did that just brilliantly. Yeah, they really did. They're, they're, uh, the label was the product, so to speak. Um, so, Barry, um, if you look at the early days, you're working with Seth on launching this company, and one of the things you talk about in the book is that how you're very different people, and I think aspiring entrepreneurs are, are going to want to hear about this. You talk about how you've got very different skills and really complementary skills. Tell our listeners about that. One of the challenges of being an entrepreneur, uh, unlike a student at Yale, is if you're at Yale and you get six out of ten right, we still give you an A. But <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur and you get nine out of ten right and you fail the tenth thing, you're out of business. So you could mess up in terms of your capital structure, in terms of your marketing, in terms of your sales, in terms of your production. Uh, there's so many things that can go wrong. And the chance that one person is able to have all of the different skills is incredibly small. And so instead of trying to clone yourself and have somebody just like you, having somebody who can fill in your holes and delegate so that I do what's best for me and you do what's best for you is something that allows both of us to be more successful. My job was very easy at Honesty. I was chairman, and my job was to help Seth be successful because if he succeeded, I would succeed. And so early on, I was able to help him in terms of focusing on fundraising while he could be focusing on running the business. Uh, one of us might be more of a, uh, an optimist, which is essential because a startup is a marathon, and one of us can be more of a pessimist or realist and make sure that uh, our suppliers really are giving us what they're supposed to be giving us or aren't double billing us or are in fact going to deliver by when they say they're going to deliver uh, or they've actually signed the contract that they promised to sign. And so uh, having the person who's always upbeat, but also having the person who has the reality check uh, can be quite helpful. And uh, as I say, the, uh, the, comp the set, of, set of skills that are needed uh, is absolutely beyond what you would normally expect. And that's just a general point, which is, I think, as we look at companies today, they've got people so specialized, and what we really need are more jack-of-all-trade types, masters of many. Yeah, you talk in the book about one of the lessons learned is the importance of, uh, my words, not yours, getting your fingernails dirty and really getting down into the business, all the details of mm -hmm. the business, um, what, expand on that a little bit, if you would. I, I think that, uh, it's fine to outsource, uh, ac much activity, whether it be warehousing or possibly, uh, transportation, uh, we outsource production, but at the same time, when we're doing that, we're also going to the firm and watching them and making sure that what they're doing is what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, we worked on developing recipes. We worked on doing our own market research so that we weren't just relying on a report of somebody else. We saw the data firsthand. 
uh, Seth and I answered every single email from customers early on, so we could truly understand what their feedback was. Uh, we did demos and sampling. Uh, we created recipes in our kitchen. Uh, that's one of the great things about food companies is that uh, before you have to go too high-tech, you have the ability to go and uh, experiment. And a nice thing about uh, tea compared to kombucha and other things is that if the recipe doesn't work in five minutes, you can make a new one. Mm. And so we've talked a little bit about what's in the bottle, the product itself, and what differentiated it. In the book, there's quite a bit of discussion about the packaging. And Absolutely. Te- you know, and, and, and there was a lot of thought that you guys went into with the packaging, multiple versions that you went through. Why did you find that the package itself was so important? Uh, our advertising budget was uh, roughly mm, zero. And uh, therefore, the best advertising we could do was what we told people about the product on the bottle. And our goal was that not only would they like the taste, but in some sense, we were going to sell them on the taste before they even started drinking. And that they would know enough about the product so they could explain to their friends, their colleagues, their family of why this made sense and why the other person should also be drinking honest tea. And what strikes me, uh, it actually drives me to distraction, is how many companies waste valuable words congratulating themselves. It's amazing, energizing, changes the world, this, that, and the other, uh, as opposed to giving them the information in a way that's much more objective. So our original text was something of the form of, we were thirsty, we looked for bottled tea that truly tasted like tea but couldn't find any, so we made our own. Honest teas have one-sixth the sugar of those super sweet uh, sugar-laden drinks, uh, and uh, that's that's it. Uh, sort of, it's a simple message of what's the problem. So, if you were like us and you couldn't find the drinks you wanted, uh, we're telling you now you can. Uh, that it's sort of it's a subtle flavor. It's not going to hit you over the head. It's uh, tea that tastes like tea. And uh, we were the anti-Snapple. And so you gave the customers the information to understand who you are and uh, who you weren't. And that, to me, that, uh, if you like, that anti-marketing, that just being honest about who you are, uh, is incredibly effective. And we see a lot of companies now uh, taking that approach, whether it be the transparency of what each ingredient costs uh, in terms of a shirt, uh, to, as opposed to, Uh, just patting yourself on the back. The challenge, if you'd like, is when when you think about you have 100 words to play with, every single word counts. And we must have done 30, 40, 50 drafts to get it just right. It's a clever concept, and I think you're right. A lot of companies don't use this concept of make the package really promote the product We talked about RX Bar being a great example of that. In terms of zero advertising budget, that's fascinating. A lot of our listeners are going to, you know, want to hear more about that because we had a prior guest on the podcast, GT Dave of uh, GT's Living Foods, and he built Mm -hmm. a tremendous 
kombucha business with Synergy and other product lines. And I believe to this day, he's not spent a single penny on advertising. So what, but there's, you know, easier said than done, right? What do you think the secret sauce is so that you could launch and not spend money on advertising? Well, it's, it varies on your product. So one great thing about Honest Tea is that the cost of a trial is pretty low. It's kind of a buck. And so you don't have to make a big investment to see if you like it or you don't like it. The other is that we did a huge amount of, sample, of sampling. And so that when we could find opportunities where we thought our customers were, whether it be uh, a music event, a yoga event, uh, a political event, uh, we would be out there handing out samples. And once you tried it, if you liked it, you got right away what we were up to. And if you didn't like it, great. You had other products that were available. And so uh, we could truly depend on a combination of word of mouth and sampling as we thought the most effective way to get the message out there. Eventually, you can imagine, and now, in fact, there is advertising that's being done. But as an early startup, your distribution is sufficiently bad that you want to be targeting customers where they can buy the product. And so that's why sampling was just such an effective strategy. You talked about free promotion that comes from uh, perhaps celebrities and, and other venues. Why don't, you, why don't you tell our listeners the story that you shared in the book about uh, the earlier days and uh, sure. the 2008 uh, presidential campaign? Well, before that, I mean, we had very great luck with people whose name begins with O from Chicago. So I happened to be at a yoga retreat, and two mats down from me was Oprah Winfrey. And after yoga, I had some of our Jakarta ginger and uh, sampled her on it. She loved it. And next thing you know, we were one of O's picks in, uh, in O Magazine. Mm. And Seth uh, said to me afterwards, well, you know, Barry, that's great. I mean, it's amazing. But how did you know Oprah was going to be there at this yoga place? And I said, I, I don't know. I, I had no idea. So then how did you know to have honesty with you? And my answer was, well, I always have samples with me. And that for years, my colleagues, my students, my friends would sort of joke, laugh at me because sort of I would have a backpack or in one of my jacket pockets, uh, a bottle of honest tea, uh, sometimes cold, sometimes not. And uh, I basically had samples so that when the right opportunity arises, uh, you are ready for it. And I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I've met uh, who I said, great, can I try the product? It's like, I'll have to get back to you on that. Mm. And uh, so I say a huge lesson is uh, if it's small in a bread box, you should be carrying it with you at all times. And, and tell, the, uh, tell the story of Seth uh, and his airplane encounter during the uh, presidential campaign. Seth and the airplane. I mean, we did have one of our salespeople uh, on, I think at the time it was uh, either People's Express or Southwest, who uh, convinced the flight attendant to let him practice his sales pitch over the intercom. Uh, while on a flight, and then actually sampled the entire plane. Uh, that was in the days where you could actually bring beverages on planes. Uh, so we had a captive audience. Uh, Seth, at one point, I think, did run into then-candidate Obama, uh, who, uh, turns out, without our help, uh, had discovered the product and was a huge fan. 
uh, and in fact, actually even became a bit of an issue in the 2008 election, where he was tagged as being an elitist uh, for drinking Black Forest Berry. Uh, that, uh, and it's like, well, wait a second, this is an American company. I, I don't get what's, uh, we're not doing some imports here. Uh, and uh, when he was elected, it was in Marine One, Air Force One, all throughout the White House mess. Uh, and so uh, that was another uh, O from Chicago in our favor. But of course, I don't want to be a partisan. Uh, if you look at the uh, Andrew Yang's uh, hour-long podcast, he's got a bottle of honesty next to him, and uh, Ivanka is an honesty fan. So we're happy to quench everyone's thirst. <laughs> That's great. I'm here with Barry Nailbuff, who is co-founder of Honest Tea. Barry, let's turn to some more practical issues. Once, uh, once your mission was established, you had some recipes, you started to get some fans, you had to deal with the logistics and uh, supply chain issues. And one of, the, one of the problems we see for startups and new brands is finding suitable co-packers to actually uh, make the product. That seems to be a very, very common product. Tell us about your experiences and your lessons learned from that. Yeah. Uh, so it is a challenge. Uh, sometimes people call it a nightmare. Uh, and it's true. The fact is that when you're small, the co-packer is worried about whether you'll pay the bills, so you should try and pay in advance. They're worried about whether or not you're going to be there, so should they be reserving time for you in the long run. Uh, you're probably going to be doing runs that are below minimum size for them. Uh, and one of the mistakes that we made, and one of the larger mistakes, cost us over a million dollars, was that we ended up buying a plant because we couldn't get the time that we needed and the attention we needed from the a plant we were originally working with. But what we should have done is gone to that plant and said, look, if we were to give you $50,000, would you please treat us like somebody who was 10 times our size and essentially make it financially rewarding for this co-packer to actually give you the attention that you deserve and that you need. And so the challenge, if you'd like, is uh, paying the co-packer a large amount of money doesn't seem like it's cost effective, but the alternative of not working with a great co-packer and having costs, uh, variable costs, that don't make any sense, quality control that isn't great, uh, it can be even worse. Because the truth is we needed to experiment in terms of different production, ways of doing things, uh, and those are all costly. And uh, the challenge, if you'd like, is sometimes the startups are trying to get things on the cheap, but uh, they are more of a problem and more costly to work with. And so accept it, bring it out, and make it worth the co-packer's while to work with you. It's a great tip. Incentives for co-packers, you're looking back, easy to see it in the rearview mirror, but at the time, probably never crossed your mind. Yeah, in fact, the opposite did. And so this is the learning from your mistakes, if you'd like, uh, is that uh, we'd be happy if our co-packers was willing to invest in us, uh, and I think that was the farthest thing uh, on their mind. And, of course, you're a little cash-strapped, so maybe you don't really want to think about paying in advance. It's one of the lessons I try and teach in strategy and negotiation to be allocentric rather than egocentric, to be centered on others, and to think about their incentives to work with you rather than your incentives to work with them. I know why I want to work with this co-packer. Why is it they want to work with me? And that's the real challenge, 
And it's the obvious question that they're going to be asking. It's great advice. So let's turn to raising funds. When at a certain point in time, when you were moving to scale up, you had to get investors to get the right capital in. And you took a counterintuitive approach. You and Seth said, well, we're not going to take any equity day one. We'll earn our equity, which is generally the reverse of generally how it's done. Uh, tell our listeners about that. Yeah, the, the classic entrepreneurial startup comes and says, here's my business plan where I'm going to have $50 million in sales by year five. So that the business is going to be worth $250 million, and that's why you should invest today at a value of $5 million. Which is kind of funny because if I really believed that this business was going to be worth 50 times what I say it's worth, then why am I willing to sell it so cheaply? And at the same time, if I say, look, I have no experience in this business, uh, no experience in consumer products, and yet I want you to invest at a $100 million valuation, they'd laugh at you. And so what we did is we said, well, we're so confident that this business is going to be worth a lot. We'll let you, the investors, get all of the upside until we've hit some performance targets. And then we'll dilute you some, and if we do even better, we'll dilute you a little bit more. And so essentially we said to the investors, we're going to use a zero pre-money valuation. And so when you put in the first, there's a million shares at a dollar a share, when you put in the million dollars, you own 100% of the company. And nobody can argue with that because you can't have anything better than 100% ownership. There's no dilution. But once we get to $2 a share, we'll get some ability to buy shares at $2 and more shares at 3 and more shares at 5 more at 10 and, and more at 15 And so essentially, if we can make this company worth as much as we think it's worth, then we really should be getting some of that high-end upside. And it's hard for the investor to say, well, I don't think your company's going to be worth $200 million, and that's, uh, but I'm also not willing to give you the upside when we've gotten a 10x return. And so in the end, Seth and I went from having no equity to about 40% of the equity as we ended up taking the share price from one to about 23. And so that uh, sense of uh, anti-dilution, and normally the, co the uh, founders start with a lot and end up with a little, we went from starting with a little and ending up with a lot, uh, which works out well in the end if you are able to have the type of success that many entrepreneurs uh, believe that they're going to. Now, it's complicated to explain to people, and we probably overdid it with having five different levels. But I would say the general lesson here is that when the entrepreneur and the investor get into an argument about valuation, that the entrepreneur should say, okay, I'll let you have a lower valuation today, but I want to have options at a valuation 10x of what we're talking about. Because if I'm really able to help you get this 10x return, shouldn't I then share more in this? Because, in fact, my original valuation was more appropriate than what you're agreeing to today. And it's hard for the investor to say, no, it has to be a low valuation today, and I'm not willing to share some of the 10x plus returns that you may make possible. I think it's brilliant. It's a reverse dilution, but, uh, and I don't know if you have any idea, Barry, but I'm guessing still it's not done very often. Uh, it isn't. I mean, it's a variation of what might be thought of as preferred returns in the sense that the existing investors get their money back before anybody else gets their money back. So in that sense, it's uh, 
That's one way of thinking about it. Another is that you can think about it as a conditional valuation. It's saying, look, I think the valuation should be $20 million today. You think it should be five. Well, if I only make the company worth 10, then you're right. It's a $5 million valuation. But if I make it worth 200, then it's a $20 million valuation. And so essentially, we're disagreeing today about what the valuation is. But we can agree. What, let's say instead that we'll agree on what today's valuation is based on what happens in the future. So let's let's pivot to the beverage category. It's an intense, I don't have to tell you this, intensely competitive category. You drop a statistic in the book that every year 300 new brands and 1,000 new products are launched into this category. So yeah. two-part question for you, Barry. Given, given that red ocean of uh, difficult competition, number one, how did Honest Tea succeed initially in your view and number two why why didn't the competitors all gang up on it and drive it out eventually but these are the two questions that i think all entrepreneurs should be asking in the sense of not only why will you succeed which is hard enough but why will you succeed when you get copied or why won't you be copied and that second question is probably the harder one to answer than the first in terms of why we'd succeed, well, we thought and we recognized this hole in the market, this idea that declining margin utility was being violated by making tea not taste like tea. Uh, there's another theorem in economics that was being violated. It's sometimes called the babysitter theorem, which is nobody goes out and hires a babysitter and then eats at McDonald's because if you're going to spend 50 or $60 on the babysitter, you're going to go out and have a nice meal. And in the context of bottled tea, it didn't make any sense that people are spending more money on the bottle, the cap, the label, than on the ingredients. And so if we could spend an extra nickel on the quality of the tea and people could taste the difference, then it makes sense to see if you increase the, the, uh, the price of the tea by a nickel from a buck to a buck five or a buck ten, and the product is radically better then it doesn't make sense to essentially fill up an expensive bottle, label, and cap with low-quality ingredients. So all of those uh, backgrounds led us to believe that we'd initially be successful, and we had this 20% of the market that was being unserved. The harder question is, why weren't going to be copied? And there, I think there's this issue of cognitive dissonance, which is it's hard to sell X and not X at the same time. If you really liked the way Snapple tasted, then you actually disliked the way Honest Tea tasted. And so somehow Snapple would have to say to its customers, uh, if you're a Snapple customer, don't try this other unsweetened or lightly sweetened product because you're going to hate it. And that's difficult for that company to have a product that their, most of their customers are going to dislike. Now, you can do a different brand. And eventually, when this category gets known, Snapple has, in fact, entered into it where they're lightly sweetened. But it's still this sort of – you almost have to have that warning sign for them up front. The other is that, of course, you also have to change the whole way in which you're doing things, which is if you're using really astringent tea so as to stand up to the sugar, if you get rid of the sugar, the tea that's in there tastes terrible when it is not uh, sweetened. So you have to find the high-quality tea. 
as opposed to what you're currently using. Uh, and therefore, you can't just change one part of the recipe. You have to change the whole ecosystem that's connected to it. That doesn't mean that eventually other people won't copy you. It just, it'll take them some time. And hopefully during that time, you can get enough running room to establish a brand, to establish a reputation, uh, and to have a customer base. And that's what we were counting on, and we were lucky that we did. So let me let me throw a slight pivot at you, which is sure. I, you, your point is this is why Snapple or others like Snapple couldn't or wouldn't drive honesty out of business. But eventually, you and Seth did sell the company to Coca-Cola. And Correct. that worked out pretty well. And honesty is still on shelf. So why did that work well? Well, we, I, as you said, uh, at some point people will copy you. And the only question is how long? And we had 10 years before we had to really start worrying about that. But one, at that point, we had proven this category really was not just a niche, but a large opportunity. And so as a result, everyone was now looking for ways to enter into that space. And for years, Coca-Cola and Nestle had a partnership called Nestle that prevented either of them from doing anything in the tea space other than through that partnership. Well, that partnership ended in the U.S., and create a situation where both Nestle and Coca-Cola were looking to purchase a tea company. And they both made it clear to us that Honest Tea was their first choice, but if they didn't succeed in buying us, they were going to buy somebody else. And so the question is, did we want to be in a position whereby we were not just going to be competing against the uh, smaller players, if you'd like, the, I don't know, Grandma's Tea, Trade Winds, uh, Tazo, but uh, we're going to be competing against both Coca-Cola and Nestle, uh, who is going to be buying one of our other smaller rivals. And uh, so that was a challenge. And then, of course, the other is that so much of our mission is inside the bottle itself. That is, we're using organic tea leaves, fair trade ingredients. And if we could scale from 50 million in sales to 500 million, million in sales. And if we could reduce the cost of our bottles from 19 cents to 11 cents, and thereby bring down the cost of the product, we could expand the access to better health to a much broader community. We could promote organic farming and fair trade farming. And so uh, the ability to work with a partner like Coca-Cola is really just unparalleled in terms of your ability to have a bigger impact. One of the things that Mutar Kent, the NCO, said to us was that he didn't want Coca-Cola to change Honest Tea. He wanted Honest Tea to change Coca-Cola. And if you can show that the market can be successful for a healthy, delicious product, boy, uh, that change, and Coca-Cola gets that message, think about what they can do. So is one of your is one of your tips to entrepreneurs or even mid uh, range companies be mission driven? Is mission driven part of the secret sauce? Well, I want to go more than mission driven. I want the mission to be in the product. Mm -hmm. So let me use uh, you know slight uh, beating up on our friends Ben and Jerry. 
they have a fantastic mission. They've done all sorts of great things around the world, but their product itself, you know, is kind of high fat, high sugar, yummy, uh, but doesn't necessarily improve, improves happiness. Whether it improves health is another question. Uh, whereas if I contrast that with, let's say, Seth's newest venture, Beyond Meat, here it is, we're helping save the planet from issues of uh, cows, overgrazing, methane, uh, global warming. And so the more people who eat Beyond Meat, the better it is for our, our planet. The more people who drink Honest Tea, the better it is for our health. And so when your product itself is part of the social mission, that is to me the, uh, is the trifecta. It's not just that you, in terms of the way you treat your customers, your, uh, your focus on what type of charities that you do, uh, or good work that you do, but that the product itself is making the world a better place. So, Barry, I understand your message that it's important to not just have a mission-driven company, but to really deeply connect that with the product. But if I'm an aspiring Correct. entrepreneur, isn't that easier said than done? Isn't that really, really tough to figure that out? No, it's bloody obvious, which is uh, you you can't have a mission-driven company that's involved with gambling or cigarette smoking. Uh, but uh, you can have a mission-driven company that's, uh, in many contexts, so one of my uh, our famous alums at the Yale School of Management is Austin Ligon. He started CarMax. And you might think, well, how is selling used cars mission-driven? But it turns out that car dealerships discriminate against women and minorities. And at CarMax, everybody pays the same price. And car dealers weren't famous for being great places to work. And CarMax regularly makes the what are top 100, top 10 places to work. And so if you take an industry which is messed up and you make it better for both the customers and for the employees, hey, now it seems it, it, that works. And so uh, it should be clear why your products are making the world a better place. Why are they helping to repair the earth? And if you can't say that, then you don't have a mission-driven company. Mm-hmm. Good advice. So yeah. let's let's go back to some practical challenges you faced earlier in the business at Honest Tea. At one point in time, and the book gets quite a bit deeply into this, distribution challenges. Um, why why is distribution in the beverage space so complicated? And you know what were your lessons and takeaways from that? I mean, the challenge is that uh, many products can't just be sold over the internet. Uh, in particular, glass bottles with liquid in them are hard to transport. And the fact is that the people who are running these distribution businesses uh, tend to be very cynical. They, quote, seen it all before. And it's not as if they are your target customers or they're excited about it. So they're going to get excited about making money. But it's a little bit of a chicken and egg because until they see the product move, they're not going to want it. But it's not going to move until they're helping make it accessible. And so trying to find the distributor who believes in you is wildly difficult. So it may be trying to find the store that believes in you. And I'd say we spent early on too much effort trying to get the distributors and not enough trying to get the stores. Because it turns out the distributors care a lot more about what the stores have to say than what you have to say. 
And when the store says jump, they say how high. And so if you convince the store to really go after you, then the distributor will come on board. And so rather than try and bribe uh, a distributor to carry you, go and bribe a store that's your right store. Get them, pay them, offer them free fills, uh, offer them sampling, coupons, advertising, whatever, uh, to get it into the store and have them uh, help you get the right distributor. And so when you think back on the early days of Honest Tea, Barry, what were some of the scariest moments what, that you had and Seth had where, where you guys thought, boy, we could just lose it all? We had uh, cases where we had glass in bottles uh, because it turns out we were filling our product with what's called a pop filler, which filled them under pressure. And when the glass broke, glass went flying everywhere rather than a gravity filler. We didn't know the difference between those things. We had a recall then over, over one of the summers. So we lost almost a full year's worth of sales. That was a disaster. Mm. We had a, a car accident where Seth uh, rolled his car, and that uh, you know, could have been curtains. Uh, there were so many things that go wrong. And in fact, that's one of my warning signs to most young entrepreneurs, which is essentially, even if they get things right up front, they won't have the resilience to rebound when things go wrong that they eventually will go wrong and that, uh, uh, that you'll end up having some recall because somebody will go and end up making a mistake. You know, in one business I was associated with, we thought everything we were getting was organic, but it turned out there was a, a farmer somewhere in Spain who lied about whether his products were actually organic. And so then what do you do when you have things that are being sold to organic that aren't? And you do a recall or you don't do a recall. And you have the resources to actually uh, take care of problems that somebody else creates, but you end up being on the hook for. Because in the end, you don't have the ability or the time to sue somebody in these things. And uh, so you just have to uh, have the extra resources, have the investors who believe in you, have the customers who believe in you, who will give you a second chance because you're going to certainly need it. On the flip side... Was there one singular moment where you and Seth looked at each other and gave each other a high five and said, we made it. This is, this is all going to work. Yeah. When the check cleared from Coca-Cola. <laughs> what, there wasn't a single moment until then that you guys could put, could put your feet up on the table. No, there were times when we were negotiating uh, where the partner on the other side, you know, calls up Seth and says, Barry is trying to ruin your family's future. And he's going to destroy it all for you. So uh, these were some uh, challenging periods. And uh, let's be clear. We were doing great uh, in 2008 that our sales uh, were doubling. Uh, everything was fantastic. If we hadn't done the deal with Coca-Cola, I'm not sure we would have survived the financial crisis. We had a $5 billion bank line uh, that we needed because we were uh, – doubling sales. We were growing from $23 million to $75 million. Ultimately, we needed a $12 million line to cover receivables and inventory. But when the financial crisis hit, our bank line went away, went to zero. Mm. And if we didn't have the relationship with Coca-Cola so that uh, our investors were willing to lend us some money to do this, I'm not sure we would have made it or been able to grow. And so everything could be going right, but the financial crisis gets in the way. And uh, and so it was, uh, 
we were fortunate for other reasons that we actually had the extra resources uh, and we had done the deal with Coke. We weren't anticipating a financial crisis. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I don't think there's any uh, security in this, in this regard. It's actually a lesson that I think is uh, an important lesson for investors in startups, which is you really want to give your CEO and founders some liquidity earlier on because otherwise they'll end up ask, acting a little bit more risk averse than you might, which is, uh, you know, at some point, Seth and I have uh, personal guarantees out there for all of our net worth, for our houses, cars, you name it. Uh, and the downside looking pretty scary. and The upside where we are is pretty good. And so are we going to really try and grow this company from a couple hundred million to a billion or sort of say, you know, we've done pretty well, and this is the time now to take some chips off the table. And uh, not every company gives its entrepreneurs the chance to uh, have a little bit of a nest egg so that they're willing to keep on going for the uh, even higher price. Speaking of crisis management, you wrote in the book, that one of your lessons was at times you just have to trust your gut, which seems like an odd thing for a business school professor to be saying. Talk, talk to us about that. Uh, well, first off, it's literal in the sense of we like the flavors. And so uh, we knew who our target customers were because we were them. And so if it felt right to us, then uh, we knew that we at least had two of them. Uh, on board. And uh, one of the challenges you often have with companies is that they don't have somebody there who truly represents the brand. They may have somebody who represents the larger company, but not the ambassador, not the vision of what this brand is about. And so it was everything from uh, what's the right decision? Uh, should you put calories uh, per serving or calories per bottle? Well, you know, we're being honest and people we don't think are just going to drink eight ounces. They're going to drink 16 ounces. So we should put calories per bottle on there, not calories per FDA required eight ounce serving. Uh, and that sense of what is our mission? Who are we? Uh, is something that Seth is as powerful a leader in as anyone on this planet. Uh, he is the walking embodiment mission of healthy, honest, forward-looking, socially responsible business. And in that sense, uh, if it sat right with him, it sat right with his wife, Julie, sat right with my wife, Helen, and kids, then we knew that we were doing the right thing. So there are a lot of lessons in the book, and I encourage all of our listeners to read it, Mission in a Bottle by Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. Barry, if you had to net it out to your top two or three bits of advice for startups and aspiring entrepreneurs, what would that be? One is not to try and do something which is an incremental improvement, that because there's so many other things that are going against you, it should really be radically different and better. And uh, the other, uh, which I'd say... Uh, we've talked about is this notion of doing something that you really have a passion for that makes a difference in the world. Because 
it's hard enough to attract capital. It's hard enough to attract employees. It's hard enough to make this go on and, and make the slog uh, for 10 years. Uh, but if there's something that you can truly believe in, and more than just about making money, then you get excited or you get disappointed when it's Friday because you have to wait till Monday to keep on doing it again. And so you want this thing to be so much fun and ha- and so important uh, that you can't wait for Monday to come around. Mm. And how about at an individual professional level? If you're if if you're an early career person joining the food and CPG space, maybe you're going to work for Honest Tea or Coca Cola or our yeah. or our X Bar or Beyond yeah. or whatever. Yeah. What advice would you give them? I say find a startup that is early on that you can be part of that's growing fast. Because one of the great things about startups that are growing fast is that you will be given more responsibilities than any sane person would ever give you. Because they're always going to be looking to hire new people. People on the inside are easier to find than people on the outside where the job needs to be done. And and until you hire somebody from the outside, you give somebody inside a chance. And so it could be that you promote the executive assistant to being the head of sales, or you end up being in charge of production or marketing or graphic design. And so if you really want to get experience that no sane person would give you based on your background, uh, the early fast-growing startup is absolutely the place to make that happen. Mm. Learn on somebody else's dime and figure out all the mistakes they're making so you don't have to make them yourself. So talk to us about what you're up to these days. You're on to more startup adventures with something called Real Made Foods. Tell us, tell our listeners about that, Barry. Yeah, so after, well, first, after Honesty, uh, with another student, I worked on a product called Kombucha, which is a slightly alcoholic version of kombucha. And that's now available in New York and on the West Coast. It's part of the AB InBev family. And uh, that was another little adventure. And uh, after that, I started a company to make overnight oats. Uh, and the idea that's actually a constant theme, you can see with Honest Tea, is can we make a product that you buy that's actually better and cheaper than what you would make on your own? So it's not just convenient, but it's better and cheaper. And so we took oatmeal and put together with things like mulberries and chia and coconut and freeze-dried bananas and instant coffee and apples and cinnamon and ginger, and essentially created this fantastic overnight oats recipe that would take you a while to put together, and if you had bought all of the mulberries and bananas separately, would actually cost you more than if you buy it from us. And so this idea of helping customers make great products on their own is what my partner, Jessica Price, and I are doing with Real Made Foods. And you can try it at Amazon. Uh, RealMadeFoods.com is a good place to to look for it. Uh, So uh, we think it's healthy. There's no added sugar. It's amazing. Uh, And uh, it solved my breakfast problem. Again, it was one of those things like, well, okay, I don't really, I'm not kind of into cereal. Granola is a little more in the sugar frontier that I'm looking for. Uh, yogurt's nice, but sort of not every day. And so what can, people don't have enough time to make breakfast and to make a, uh, a really nutritious, satisfying, 
gourmet, delicious thing. And so we have a hack, which is just like you might leave the kids' clothes out the night before, could you make breakfast the night before? And you just add your favorite milk, put it in the fridge, and you can go to bed happy knowing there's a great breakfast waiting for you. Sounds like a clever idea. I can't wait to try it. And I I wouldn't even know where to go to buy mulberries. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Uzbekistan is where they're from. <laughs> okay. I learned, I learned that lot, today. But it's a lot cheaper if you get them from us <laughs> than buying the ticket there. All right. And then the other product that I'm working on is a company called Choose Health. And the idea there is also a very simple one, which is, uh, if you look at the adult formulas, whether they be Boost and Ensure, they've got a lot of high fructose corn syrup in them and other ingredients you might or might not want. And so could you do an honest tea version of adult supplements? And uh, we're going to give it a shot and see if we can make an organic, less sweet, more delicious, healthy adult supplement. Mm. Sounds like a really interesting concept. And I assume nobody's tried that before. Uh, you know, people are doing it for the uh, 20-year-olds uh, with Soylent and uh, Orgain, but I wouldn't say that they're doing it in the organic fashion for seniors, uh, and that's what we're going to try and do. Mm. Well, good luck with both of these ventures. They sound really exciting. Barry, before we go into wrap-up mode, is there any other advice or words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, don't do it. Uh, the, uh, I, I joke and sort of try and talk people out of it because in some sense, if I can talk you out of it, then you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, that you should, uh, have sufficient passion, sufficient confidence, uh, that, uh, a little bit of, uh, counter arguments, uh, are, shouldn't be enough to dissuade you. Uh, you can't just be on the fence on this thing. You have to be all in. I'd like to thank my guest, Barry Nailbuff. Barry, thank you so much. We, we, we are excited about Overnight Oats and Choose Health. We'll be watching those brands uh, closely. And we really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.